Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, Amen. When you think of wine, that is, if you think of wine at all, your mind and maybe even your, your palate might wander to a region in France. We know that the French have a long history of vintage winemaking, and they provided the names for some of the most well-known varieties on the market today. Champagne, Bordeaux, Chardonnay, Burgundy, just to name a few. And all of those regions give names to those type of French wine. In order to be authentic, they have to have originated in that region. The stuff that ball players spray on each other when they win the World Series or the Super Bowl might be called champagne. But if the bottle indicates it came from anywhere other than that specific region of France, it's just considered sparkling wine. But while the French seem to be the exemplary wine experts, more adventurous winemakers have been, excuse the pun, branching out, if you will, leaving behind conservative and really highly regulatory regions of their home country in France. Some of these French winemakers moved to America. America has a more freewheeling wine country, especially around Napa Valley, California. Philippe Melka, who moved from France to Napa Valley, puts it this way. He says, here you not only have a lot more options, but there's an excitement about trying new things. Nicolas Morlet, who descends from a long line of champagne producers, agrees with that assessment. He says it's completely different here. We have the freedom to fully realize our passion, to push our limits with every vintage. We're not working under a classification made in France in 1855 or a constitution of great growth. Some things are unchanged about winemaking. One foundational principle that applies to both the old world and the new world wines is that great wine is always a reflection of a particular vineyard. Let me say that again. Great wine is always a reflection of a particular vineyard. If you want to pick a good wine, in other words, you have to know where it came from. Jesus obviously knew a little bit about wine himself, since we often see him at some of the parties that we read about in the Gospels, and he knew exactly what kind of wine would really blow the minds of the guests and the host at the wedding feast in Cana. So it shouldn't be a big surprise that he uses this metaphor of a vineyard to describe his relationship with his disciples. A discussion, obviously, that appears in this chapter 15. Jesus knew the best way to tell what kind of product that you were getting would be to look at the label, to see where in the world it came from. In this case, the source isn't a place, but is a person, in Jesus. Jesus is the vine, and he begins by saying that he is the true vine, the source of growth, fruit-bearing, in a vineyard that is tended by the Father. So we know from that that God is the winemaker. The creator God, therefore, is the real winemaker, the one who tends the vineyard, assures its quality. And we know that that vineyard that God is working on has a history. 
Turns out, too, that this vineyard has a long and celebrated history. The idea and metaphor of a vineyard is used several times in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with Israel. In Isaiah 5, for example, God plants and tends a vineyard, but it yields, according to the scripture, it yields wild grapes or inferior fruit. That was a metaphor for the betrayal of Israel and Judah. That same vineyard imagery is used in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. And in each of these, Israel is the vine and the ultimate source of the poor fruit. Fruitfulness in the Old Testament was another way of saying faithfulness. So a lack of good fruit, a lack of fruitfulness, meant that God's people had failed to be the true nourishing vine. That would reinforce God's reputation in the world as the ultimate fine winemaker. That being the case, it was the winemaker's job to do the pruning, to do the replacing, which is what the prophets saw as the exile came. Later, God would replant that vineyard with a new stock, new vine, and that true vine is Jesus, who embodied the new Israel, God's chosen one, the one through whom the whole world would be saved and blessed. So now we come to the branches. And while the vine is the source of the good fruit, there's a vital link between the vine and the fruit, and that is the branches. They're the focus of Jesus' teaching as he talks to the disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches, he says. Notice the disciples of Jesus aren't the fruit. They're not the end product, but the channel for the vine's nourishment. The quality of the fruit then depends on the branch's connectedness to the vine. Does that make sense? What Jesus is describing here is a necessary interrelationship between himself and his disciples. A relationship that's characterized by mutuality, by indwelling, staying together. A relationship that's also focused on bearing great growth for the whole world. If you look closely at a grapevine, though, and one of the first things you notice about its branches, if you've ever walked in a vineyard, it's very difficult to tell the individual branches apart. All the branches twist and turn and they curl around one another to the point you can't tell where one branch starts and another one begins. The use of this branch imagery then is a way of expressing that it's not the achievement of an individual branch or its status that matters. The quality of branches and fruit depends solely on the quality of their connectedness to the vine. When it comes to discipleship, each branch or individual gives up his or her desire for individual achievement in order to become one of the many entwined and encircling branches. It is to be a community that is rooted and nurtured by Christ and points to his reputation and quality, not their own. With that kind of understanding of branches in our mind, there are a couple of things that we branches must remember in order to stay effectively and fully connected to Christ. First, we have to remember that branches are fruit-bearing, not fruit-making. He says, just as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. 
We've heard those words from Jesus many times, but we also hear the call of a culture of people working themselves to death. Achievement and success that can lure disciples of Christ into thinking that they can be fruitful all on their own, bearing their own fruit. Many are the pastors, for example, who have built large churches and famous reputations only to crash and burn as a result of some moral failure, which is frequently the result of a failure to stay intimately connected to Jesus. When a branch gets the idea that it can make fruit and wine all on its own, as the scripture says, it dries up, it withers, and is no longer useful. The mission of a branch isn't to look good or to call attention to itself, but to give all the glory to the one whose name is on the label. The second thing to remember is the fruit that we are to bear, like the grapes of a fine winery, is full of many textures, many flavors. Paul outlines some of these in Galatians when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A more general way to talk about the fruit that we bear, though, might be to talk about grace. As branches connected to and abiding in the source of God's love and grace, we are conduits. We are the means to the end product, not the end product. God's grace and love always come to us on their way to someone else. Someone who will be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because we have been fruitful branches. People will know that. So how do we best stay tr- connected to this true vine, to Jesus? Founder of Methodism, John Wesley, shared that we must stay close to what he called the means of grace that have been given to us by God. By diving into these practices, these disciplines of faith, he describes as a means of grace, we can stay in relationship with Jesus. We can stay connected to that true vine, allowing the pruning of our lives that help us become the best branch that we can be. Wesley divided those means of grace into works of piety and works of mercy. For works of piety, he described them as to read, meditate, and study the scripture, to pray, fast, attend worship regularly, live healthy lives, share your faith with others. And then the works of mercy we are to live out. He says are doing good works, visiting the sick, visiting those in prison, feeding the hungry, giving generously to the needs of others. Now he wasn't just talking about individuals, he also shared that the church must be willing to do this as well, to adhere to the means of grace collectively. To do that for works of piety, the church must regularly share in the sacraments. Christian conferencing, being held accountable to one another, study the Bible together. And together as a community of faith, we are to engage in works of mercy, to seek justice, to end oppression, discrimination, and address the needs of the poor. Question could be, what happens when branches are not carrying the fruit? Well, that's where the whole idea of pruning comes in. The branches that are carrying no fruit are removed. Even the most fruitful branch, the most fruitful branch is pruned in order to make it bear more fruit. Branches on a grapevine are prone to growing too aggressively, producing more and more leaves and shoots. 
that can bleed nourishment away from the grapes and sometimes even hide them from the sunlight. A winemaker knows that trimming back excess growth is key to maximizing the branch's effectiveness. In the vineyards of Jesus' day, grapevines grew naturally along the ground instead of being propped up as we see them today. The vine dresser would come along to lift and to clean the vine. That is pruning away the excess and the dead growth. Jesus uses this same image to describe the way the disciples themselves have been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. In another version of the Bible, it says, you have already been pruned by my word. So staying close to God's word, to Christ's word, is important because it can help prune us to bear more fruit. We need to follow those teaching and commandments of Jesus. We need to meditate and look to obey his word, to remain connected to him and the vine. I mentioned a means of grace as the reading, meditating, and praying through the scriptures. It's one way in which we as disciples are pruned. The words of Jesus about the kingdom and the story of his life, death, and resurrection focus on what's truly important for bearing the fruit of his grace and the love to the world. When we are focused on the word, we're able to cut out all those other offshoots and tangents of temptation and sin that choke out our great growth and being able to bear the best fruit. We read in Hebrews that scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword. We need to consider that scripture is the ultimate set of pruning shears for our lives, trimming us for a life of discipleship we were meant to live. Such pruning can be painful as God uses it to lop off all of our old habits, to cut away the growth of sin that we somehow think is attractive, but is absolutely necessary to be pruned off, to be pruned off of us if we're going to embrace our purpose as branches of God's grace. Bruce Wilkinson once wrote a book called The Secrets of the Vine, Breaking Through to Abundance, and he shares that grapes need pruning, and so do Christians. He continues by saying that God's pruning is painful. He argues that this pruning away of self is necessary to gain desirable results. He notes pruning will intensify as God's shears get closer and closer to the core of who you are. Wilkinson urges disciples of Jesus not to confuse pruning with discipline. And he offers a helpful chart to distinguish between the two. And he discusses four levels of fruit bearing, from no fruit to much fruit. And he talks about the connection between God's pruning and an abundant harvest. In that book, he lays down the challenge, and today I lay that down for you. Wilkinson says, if you don't know and apply Jesus' vineyard teachings, you'll never experience the abundant life you long for. There's no, simply no other way. Remember I said before, great wine is a reflection of a particular vineyard, be it from the old world or the new world winemaking. God wants the finest vineyard ever, the one that takes the ultimate prize for grand growth. So may we, as his disciples, 
the true vine, Jesus, embrace our role, embrace our role as channels for God's grace so that when the world samples the fine vintage of God's love and grace through us, that they will want to know the winemaker. What are your works of piety individually? How are you working that? How are you reading the scriptures daily, praying daily, fasting, and going through those pieces to get closer, to prune yourself, to bear the most fruit that you can as a branch on the vine of Christ? That's the question for us today, and that's what we need to work towards because the label that's on each and every one of us is God. Amen.